Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, this is the Red Box podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode, foreign affairs are a complicated business. Jim Hacker said in Yes, Prime Minister, prompting Sir Humphrey Appleby to reply, that's why we leave it to the Foreign Office. But is today's Foreign Office up to it? We talk that the Foreign Office is planning to reduce staff numbers by 20%. We'll take a look at what's really going on in King Charles Street in Whitehall. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. Normally on a Monday, it's Libby Wager, but no Wager Sylvester today. So today, Libby Purvis and from the Daily Mirror, Susie Boniface. It seems that somebody is going to have to carry the can for the Downing Street party. And um, uh, <laughs> fingers are being pointed at uh, Martin Reynolds at the moment, the Prime Minister's principal private secretary, considered a plausible fall guy, apparently, uh, for what is expected to be a critical report into uh, the parties. He was the one who uh, seemed to have all organised one of the parties. Dominic Cummings last week insisting that there were two very different parties. The one that he was at, where they sat in the garden drinking wine, was definitely a work meeting. And the one that he wasn't at uh, was definitely an illegal party. Um, what do you make? Well, let's start with you then, Susie. What do you make of this? This uh, it just seems like there's just somebody standing in Downing Street. Well, who, somebody's got to carry the can. Yes. And, you know, before Christmas, I was keeping a list of all the parties that uh, were being discovered and reported on. And I think I got to about 14 different ones. And then Dominic came along and removed one or two and put another couple in. And so now I don't know quite what total <laughs> we're at. But if what we're talking about here is someone carrying the can for one party and all the other dozen or so. Um, obviously, we're going to completely forget about those, aren't we? No one minds about those at all. Um, the thing is about Martin Reynolds, the Prime Minister's Principal Private Secretary, taking the blame for this one on May the 20th, which so far Dominic Cummings is the only source for, is that his talk about him being moved, maybe uh, getting a, an ambassadorship. Uh, so he would still, as a civil servant anyway, he'd retain his pension, he'd keep his career, he would be absolutely fine, he may even get a peerage at some point in the long run. But an ambassadorship, that isn't punishment for having an illegal party. <laughs> it, dep- well, it, dep- it depends pounds, where it is. <laughs> well, £10,000 and the magistrate's court is the punishment for an illegal party. An ambassadorship is, a, is an all-expenses-paid foreign holiday, and I don't care what anybody says, that's not acceptable to all the people who are very, very angry about these parties. Um, Libby, our colleague uh, Matthew Paris wrote uh, a really interesting piece in the Times at the weekend, where he he at that point he was talking about Lord Geit, who was the guy who was investigating wallpaper rather than parties, and got himself into quite a pickle over that. And he just said he was just one of the sort of the latest in a long line of people who who fly a bit too close to Boris Johnson, and they all get burned in the end. Whether that was Quasi Quarteng doing the Prime Minister's you know, work defending Owen Patterson, whether it's Alex Allen, Dominic Grieve, David Gort, mm. Nick Soames, David yeah. Cameron, Theresa May, Nazina Azari Rackett, yeah. Allegra Stratton, even his own brother. In the end, everyone who gets close to Boris Johnson, they end up being the ones who have to carry the can. They leave a scar on him. 
Absolutely. It was a brilliant piece. And, and interestingly, my most left-wing friends are now all kind of reading the Times because they, they say at last somebody said the right thing. But no, it is it is extraordinary. And this this party thing, I mean, they're looking for the party Spartacus, aren't they? You know, I am Spartacus. I am I am Particus. I will take it. The idea of him going on to be an ambassador, <laughs> Susie's right, is absolutely hilarious because basically they're, they're allowed to have parties. You know, <laughs> they have to have parties. It's part of their job well, so they can have all can the drinks and Ferrero Rocher they like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, the, the, the trouble is it does ignore the palpable fact that the prime minister and other senior ministers broke a lot of rules which they made, which a lot of really dutiful, careful, anxious people kept those rules. If you think of all the gatherings and the, the family meetings and the, the household mixing, as it is now called, which didn't happen because people were being conscientious, that's why everyone's angry. We can't lose that. I mean, that uh, I'm as bored with the party stuff as, as everybody else is, but it just it just hurts so many decent people so much to think that they simply didn't care and were in a sense mocking us uh, and i think that's you know that's the thing which will stick there's also the thing isn't there susie about how someone behaves when caught out and mm. you know there were, this this history is full of you know i remember mark harper when he was immigration minister turned out what had he done? He'd hired someone who was here illegally or or had been here legally. Then, but basically, something happened with his cleaner, and he resigned. And you sort of think, well, rights or wrongs, whatever it was, he, he carried the camphor. If your response to being caught out is to sort of deny it, deny it, deny it, deny it, find the most in, you know the most dispensable person at the office and boot them out the door, <laughs> that 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 sort of tells you something about the character of the person at the top, doesn't it? Well, of course it does. It tells you a lot. You know, if a toddler did that, you would discipline them and encourage them to behave in a way that is contrary to that, because that's not the way to get through life. And then you've got a prime minister who's literally in the most powerful job in the country, who's who's behaved that way his entire life, and he's managed to get to the top somehow. Um, so yes, it's, of course it shows the character of the prime minister. And I think it doesn't really matter what uh, is found by any of the ethics investigations into the PM. It's the fact there needs to be an ethics investigation that is what's stuck with people. And uh, when we get to the next general election, what has happened and what the findings were on who is responsible for what, uh, which of these parties won't be the thing that's on people's minds. Those millions of people who were bereaved or suffered or personally you know, missed out on big events and funerals and so on because of lockdown while the politicians were partying, they will just remember that. They will remember what they missed while mm. these people were drinking wine and champagne and calling it work. And it's as simple as that. That's it's deadly. Well, we wait to see what happens because, as the piece in the Times today points out, they, they've been around the block on who uh, this 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 current guy who's in the frame for it, uh, Martin Reynolds. I mean, previously, I think it was Jack Doyle's director of communications. They thought about kicking him. Uh, James Slack. They thought about blaming him because he's not there anymore. Um, <laughs> so we, we'll see. We'll see. By the end, maybe it will all be your fault, Susie, and they'll blame you anyway. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Good luck. I wasn't come back. partying during lockdown, but well, yeah. you're the one who seemed for some reason you seem to have a spreadsheet of all the parties, uh, which I think is very suspicious. <laughs> yeah, uh, she let... knows too much. She knows too much. Libby, <laughs> yeah. let's talk about. Um, your... Never mind bigging up uh, Matthew Pass. Let's talk about your columns there, and we've talked about this on the show before on um, about the idea of living longer and the sort of developments in science, which means uh, we could all be living longer, longer, live to a hundred, live to two hundred, even. But you're you're not so keen. 
Absolutely not. This thing comes up every now and again and it doesn't fly with me. I think the up to a century, if you're lucky, rule works quite well. The seven ages, hope you're still okay in your 90s if you're lucky. But the idea of decade after decade of old, 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 old people blocking the way for the younger ones like you, it really bothers me. I mean, I've lost good friends who are very old, only sometimes having met them in the last 10 years, and, and it's awful. But it's right and when the reaper calls, I'm absolutely going to hop off without repining and make some space for the new generation. And I think knowing that you're going to die, actually, it, it gingers life up. You sort of think, oh, what road, you know, get on with it. Do some things now, quick, while the knees still last. And you see that in older people. You see a lot of, of vigor and keenness. And I think if you thought you maybe had another 50 years to get through, you wouldn't feel like that at all. What about you, Susie? Do you want to live forever? <laughs> um, I, I don't agree that imminent death makes everyone feel perked up. But I, I had a look, <laughs> after having read uh, Libby's piece, I went and have found the original uh, document, the original report. And it's not quite as reported in many places, the Mail, the Times, a bunch of people picked this up and said, oh, we could live to 180. And it was complete misreporting of science as normal. Um, so what it actually found is they did a, a survey or statistical analysis of people who are already super centenarians, right? So people over the age of about 105, so already 108, 110 years old. So these are people who are already, in our era, incredibly fortunate. They've got some kind of genetic or social advantage which has made them last a very long time, and they're already very unusual. And they've done an analysis of them and found that if you get to about 108, you've got a reasonable chance of making it to 109. Right, that seems to be what the, the basis of it finds. <laughs> and uh, he still he still cites 180. He still cites 180. Well, he actually cites 130 as, a possible, as being as, a possible yeah, as yeah. being the most likely. Two eighty. Um, being oh. 130 is being the most likely chance. <laughs> if you get to 110, he says you've got a chance of getting to 130 at some point in the next century, but that you that would involve winning a, being the same chances as winning a coin toss for 20 goes one after another. It's about one in a million. So while there is a possibility of someone getting to 130 by the end of 21, uh, 2200, um, you, uh, there's going to be very, very, very few and far between. And the benefit of trying to think about longer lifespans is that actually what happens is while you are getting older, your health is better. So when Libby is talking about burdensome doddering in her column, what you're talking about is being less of a burden. If more people are living longer, you're not old for as long in your life. You're not as unhealthy. Indeed, so I, most I, I, I say that. Have... Yeah, I've, I've said that because Professor Samuel Gray tells us constantly to do our knees bends and healthy exercise and stand on one leg while you clean your teeth and so on. But there is a sci-fi thing which always goes on of people saying longer, longer, longer lives would be a good thing. And I just don't think they would. Well, it's predicated upon the... Sorry, Matt. It's predicated upon the assumption that there is constant a rate of constant medical advance. And that's not necessarily the case, and nor is it the case that the human body would be capable of being constantly tweaked. Ad infinitum, either. And that was the thing that when we spoke to, um, I suppose, to an expert in all of this, and you know, the science of all of it, and, and actually, you know, the dream, I suppose, for everyone is you live a, live a long, healthy, happy life, and then you have a very short period of illness at the end, uh, which is very different to, say, having a healthy life until you're 70 or 80, 
and then having a miserable time for another 50 years in, you know, deep, um, mm. um, unhappy, unhappy health. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a big difference. There's a big difference there. Um, uh, finally, let's talk about uh, the police. So this is a story that you've picked out, uh, Susie. Uh, no, it wasn't. <laughs> I've been told oh. to talk about it. <laughs> oh, I I'm thought it was. Who... Go on then. So, so the police, police officer staff uh, said to have covered up more than 100 cases of misconduct by colleagues in an 18-month uh, period. Uh, yeah, and it, what, it comes... I mean, this is another example of terrible, terrible culture inside the police. Oh, of course it is. I mean, these are people who are supposed to be investigating crimes when they happen under their nose or apparently are turning a blind eye. So this comes from a series of freedom of information requests, which has found sort of admissions by a variety of forces that they did indeed have to investigate officers who had previously not been reported by their own colleagues. But the interesting bit here, I mean, it's kind of it's a normal part of human life that we are more forgiving of people we identify with. So if you are if you hear about a terrible crime and someone's, you know, beaten his wife to death, if the person who did it uh, is is like you socially or eth- ethnically or something else, you may be more forgiving of that or see reasons or mitigation for it rather than if it was someone who is ethnically or socially very different to yourself. And you may be more inclined to, say, string them up if they're not like you and don't identify with them. So that's normal human behaviour. But what's fascinating in this is that a third of the police forces who had a freedom of information request did not respond. Now, that's illegal. A freedom of information request, you are compelled by law at least to respond to it and say whether or not you hold the information. And they, a third of them didn't bother. So there's police forces breaking the law while being asked whether or not they are, in fact, ignoring law breaking in their own ranks, which is extra well, astonishing. What do you think, Libby? Uh, yes, I mean I I agree. It's 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 awful. Um, I don't completely agree about the business of oh we all forgive people they identify with. I mean look at journalists and politicians and business rivals who all merrily hack bits off each other. In I public, don't think journalists are normal humans, Libby. Yes. <laughs> well, you yeah, on the mirror, obviously not. Um, the, <laughs> uh, but I think that the point is, if your job is hard and it's the same as soldiers, your hard, job is hard and dangerous. There does tend to be a brotherhood. In it, a loyalty, a sense you're all on the same side, and it becomes quite hard to be the snitch to turn on somebody, you know, who is going through the same nasty dealings with the public all the time as you are. So I can see why it happens, but obviously, what needs to happen within the police is the systems to be very clear and mistakes and bad behaviour to be easily reported at the very beginning. Uh, without a sense of being a snitch, sort of saying that he's getting a bit that way, you know, she's behaving a bit that way. I think you, we need far better systems because it is it is absolutely wrong. I mean, what, what happened in the case of a Sarah Everard murder is just so atrocious, you know, that here is somebody who they had seen as dodgy for quite a while and nobody had said anything, and the same in other cases. So, yeah, it needs looking at, but it's to do with the systems within the police and an understanding and an acceptance that there will all always be an innate reluctance to tell off one of your colleagues when you're all going through something Mm -hmm. which is quite hard and quite dangerous. I think as well part of the problem is, sorry Matt, part of the problem is that police misconduct is considered an employment issue. It's an ethical internal employment issue and you know it's not something that's seen as too uh, drastic within the forces sometimes. But if we made a serious breach of police conduct standards um, a crime, which some of them arguably are, then uh, it was something that could be pursued against police officers even after they've resigned from the force. Uh, it can be that there's penalties for mm. it, um, yeah. and that, that would also make it more serious within the force itself. If you made it a crime, you know, it's something they have to uphold. 
Susie Boniface from the Mirror there joining Libby Purvis. And you can read Libby in the Times every Monday. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, how can we fix the Foreign Office? You're listening to the Red Box podcast now. It's time for this. Yeah, Global Britain. Do you remember that? Well, the Foreign Office should be at the forefront of it, or the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, to give it its full title. Once one of the jewels in the government's crown, one of the great offices of state, it's in pretty bad shape, both physically and politically. Whether it's the ongoing Brexit rows over Northern Ireland or the chaotic exit from Afghanistan... Even the uh, slightly sticky merger with the Department for International Development has been unloved and underfunded and it's struggling to stay in uh, good shape. It's starting to look less competent and less and less influential on the world stage than it once was. And now there's spending cuts and huge job cuts planned too. So, how does it currently work and what would it take to fix the Foreign Office? In a moment we'll hear from a panel of experts, but I caught up with... Kim Darrick, Lord Darrick, former ambassador to the United States, about his experiences in the department. And I asked him first to sketch out what the Foreign Office would look like if it was doing its job well. The two periods I remember when British foreign policy was at its strongest and most prominent were under Margaret Thatcher, particularly in the middle years under Margaret Thatcher, post Falklands, um, her second term, beginning of her third term, and under Tony Blair. Um, And in those days, there was an exceptionally strong relationship with the US. Um, We were prepared to uh, back our policies with interventions overseas when the circumstances demanded it. When we were big players in Europe. Now, Margaret Thatcher had a troubled relationship in some ways with Europe, but she delivered the... um, the budget rebate uh, while she was there. And she was a big figure around that European Council table. Tony Blair, rather more pro-European, but also a very big figure around the table and the main voice behind EU enlargement. So in those days, we really, really carried some clout internationally and in Europe. Um, I should point out, you're you're now chair Best of Britain, which is started as a campaign group opposing uh, Brexit trying to get us to join the EU. I wonder if you think actually... Is there an opportunity for Britain outside the EU to to rebuild its sort of position on the world stage? Some people call it global Britain, but the Foreign Office could play a really strong, should be playing a really strong role in that, shouldn't it? Matt, one thing you can't get away from with Brexit, I'm not going to try and make a judgment, broader judgment of Brexit here, but the EU could be a multiplier, 27 countries following British policy when we were in, if we could persuade the others of uh, of the merits of, uh, of our approach to, to issues. When you're not around that table, you don't have that multiplier effect. Now, we still have a lot going for us. We are permanent members of the UN Security Council. Um, we have the Commonwealth. We are the second biggest contributor to NATO. So it's not like we have, we have no structures or mechanisms to support it, but we have to work, have to work a bit harder at it. And look, Global Britain is is an idea, obviously, which I support as a concept. But the thing about it is it needs resources. It needs resources. You can't play an international role if your embassies are essentially empty, 
if you have reduced uh, your foreign aid budget you know, quite substantially, and if you are spend your, all your time looking inwards at trying to solve, in particular, the problems left by the the deal we've done on Brexit. So, um, so global Britain can be a way forward, but it doesn't feel like it is to me yet. And you, you touched on embassies there. Obviously, you're probably best known for being um, Britain's ambassador to the United States. Explain what that means. What do embassies do? What is the role of the ambassador? What's the flow of information? I mean, famously, we, we were leaked some of the flow of information <laughs> that you'd, you'd sent. But on a day-to-day basis, what is the work of embassies, the network of embassies that, that Britain has around the world? Reporting on what is going on in the country to which you are posted is only part of the job. Uh, it's an important part because we need to know in London what's happening elsewhere in the world, especially if we're going to play a, you know, a role. But a bigger part of the job is trying to influence and take forward British interests. So um, in uh, whatever country you are posted to, you are trying to influence the government of that country to do things that that you know we think um, uh, deliver help to deliver our international objectives. So it is as much about, if not more about, persuading and influencing as it is about telling London what is going on. And of course, if if your embassies are hollowed out, if you have an ambassador but not much below that, you just don't have the resources to engage with the government uh, that you're accredited to, to deliver those objectives. And do you think that's because, by and large, except at times of war, foreign policy isn't really an electoral concern? That I think people that's, are not going yeah. to take to the streets because the embassy in Addis Ababa has had its staffing cut in half? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, a lot of people don't see much return for spending money on talking to foreigners. And... Uh, you know, I have great admiration for the British media, but there aren't many people out there in the media who make the case for spending money on talking to foreigners. So it's always a hard case to sell, and it needs a government which really is prepared to stand up to the, you know, the sort of easy criticism and say, but this is actually about investing in Britain's future. And actually, I suppose it only then comes up when there is a crisis, when there aren't enough people in Afghanistan to get people out, or there aren't enough people in this country or that country to, to liaise with the government of the day with a crisis unfold, you know, and so that then becomes, yeah. you know, it's, it's only when, a, when it, it leads to trouble that yeah. we notice, actually, maybe it might have been better if we had some more people there. Well, that's, that's a very good point. I mean, Afghanistan is an interesting case. People think of diplomacy as, um, you know, gilded palaces and halls and lots of uh, cocktail parties and whatever. For a long time, the biggest embassy that we had overseas in Afghanistan, where people were going around in flak jackets and living in porter cabins, and, you know, were under constant 24-hour guard because it was so dangerous. So an awful lot of diplomacy, you know, it's as much conducted in a flak jacket as it is uh, with a glass in your hand. A lot more of it, actually. Um, But by the time we did that evacuation, that chaotic evacuation from Afghanistan, by the way, on which the people on the ground, I think, did an extraordinary job and showed a lot of courage and dedication. We'd cut down a lot in Afghanistan, but we also, we were cut down back in London. You saw that with the difficulties. I mean, we've been whistleblowers saying how it was. There were real difficulties in conducting the evacuation operation from London too. And that's the effect of 40 years of declining resources.
and just on your um your time when you were in Washington, I mean obviously it was difficult with, with the Trump administration, but where does Britain sit in the sort of packing order of you know compared to other countries, and has that shifted? Was there a time when the British ambassador was at the front of the queue? Um, has that has that changed over time, and is that as a result of of London taking its eye off the ball? While I was in, in Washington, I mean, I wrote what I thought about um, about the Trump administration, how they were performing in confidential letters to London. And I think those judgments, the ones that were leaked were made in 2017. And I think they they rang true. Um, and uh, you know, so I feel um, you know, that, that, that those were good predictions of the way things were good. But our relations with the Trump administration it wasn't great between Theresa May and, um, and, and Donald Trump, but at lower levels, military to military, um, you know, I got lots of access into the White House. They were fine. They were good. Um, and uh, you know, we are still, for the Americans, if they're looking for someone to support them on international security and defence issues, they look to us first because we have a serious um, military force. It's not great with um, the Biden administration because they're watching very carefully how the Northern Ireland Protocol issue gets resolved. If we can resolve that satisfactorily, then I think we have a prospect of really getting to a better place with Biden. But we still count in America, still count in America, still count in in the rest of the world. I mean, the Europeans still need to talk to us about defence and security and and trade issues and so on. but there's no doubt that Brexit has taken away one element of, of uh, our international posture. Let's speak to Roger Boyce, diplomatic editor of The Times, who's been rootling around in the quiet corridors of uh, the Foreign Office. And it's not, it's not just lost its grandeur in uh, sort of metaphorical terms, Roger. It's uh, looking no, a bit tatty inside too. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's always been, you know, you've had to change a, a, an essentially a Victorian building over the years to adapt it, yeah? To, uh, so it's always had that slightly um, plasterboardy kind of feel, <laughs> feel about the lower floors. Of course, the Foreign Secretary's office is huge and sort of almost like a basketball court. But, but on the whole, um, yeah, that's the way it is. But I must say, it's an incredibly demoralised department. I, I've been doing a trawl of ambassadors um, who are still fiercely loyal to the institution, and in fact, I don't know another, uh, any other department in in Whitehall that actually commands such a loyalty. Uh, um, but they, um, but they're absolutely in a hole. You know, I talked to Tom Fletcher, who's now principal of Hartford College, was was the architect of a reform plan for the Foreign Office in 2016, and he says they're walking around with sloped shoulders. You know, they're, they, and it's true, uh, but the. The issue really, for me anyway, is how to distinguish between real structural problems within the department and um, uh, and just gaps, you know, gaps that have arisen through neglect or, or bad management. Um, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big, it's a big thing, you know, there's a, there's a lot going wrong in, in, in the Foreign Office. 
And I suppose the, the, you've got on the one hand um, things like the you know Brexit, the Northern Ireland Protocol, which actually is now in the Foreign Office, having been sort of hived mm. off previously, but that is now. But then you said the big structural things. I mean, the, one of the biggest structural things is m- trying to merge the Department of International Development into the Foreign Office. Very different cultures, very often. I mean, even right down to quite different pay scales. Different yeah. people in different departments. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's been there's been quite a few years pre pre the merger when, um, you know, embassies abroad were kind of dwarfed by the budget of DFID and, um, you know, and they would strut around and ministers would want to talk to, to you know, um, uh, aid, British aid workers rather than to the embassy itself. So, so there was that kind of... But, uh, so, it, in a way, it made some sense uh, to merge the two. There's, in fact, it always makes sense, it seems to me, to merge... Uh, aid with foreign policy, um, uh, or almost always, anyway. Uh, but but of course, the personal things clash immensely. You know, um, they come in sometimes with more pay. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, they haven't been vetted in the way that foreign office staff have been vetted and therefore can't qualify for certain postings or certain promotions. Um, and they, you know, they don't. They're different types of people. They're, they're, they just don't rub together all that well. Um, but but you know, that's only with, the the problem is that the merger, which still isn't fully digested, yeah, it's still causing them indigestion, um, comes together then with the stripping away of some some powers from uh, from the Foreign Office, including you know uh, the full Brexit brief, you know. Um, and and then this churn, this constant churn of ministers, so that there is actually a, a breakdown of trust between ministers and officials. Um, and that's been going on for uh, really, I suppose, since Philip Hammond's days, but, but came to a bit of a head during Boris's uh, stint. And, um, uh, and then the uh, Afghan, you know, the chaotic Afghan evacuation just showed how poor the relationship is between Dominic or was between Dominic Raab and, and, um, you know, the foreign office staff. So it's, you know, (laughs) so if you talk to Liz Truss now and say, well, what's got to be done and what went wrong in Afghanistan? um, Isn't there something going wrong, for example, with the National Security Council? Um, I mean, we knew from early 2020 that we'd have to get out of Afghanistan. And yet it took us by surprise in the summer of 2021, that means somebody's not talking. And the spat, you know, with the Minister of Defence and, and Ben Wallace and, and so on. And who was on holiday and who wasn't. Yeah, and who was on holiday and who wasn't. That, you know, that's a Keystone Cops scenario, isn't it? Everything's just, all the wheels seem to be falling off completely. Yeah, they did quite a good job. And, and you know, uh, and uh, the the ambassador in Afghanistan was was a guts, you know, had performed a really gutsy mission. But the truth is, you know, it, it showed complete confusion within Whitehall, a, a ministry that had been stripped down um, and was unsure of itself, wasn't sure how it should be projecting global Britain. That's still the priorities for that still haven't been sorted out. And, um, you know, didn't know, you know, and, and you know, didn't know uh, its head from its uh, tail. So, uh, 
<laughs> and so it pains me to say that because I've been sort of sniffing around this this uh, this office, the Foreign Office, for a long, long time. Yeah? <laughs> um, but it's changed, you know, and of course it should change. Um, um, I remember when I first, uh, uh, my first foreign posting was for the FT years and years and years ago, like 30 years ago. More, more sorry, 40 years ago. And uh, there was a young uh, guy uh, there just starting at the embassy. He was third secretary and therefore in charge of culture, which was rated as being, you know, the most pathetic job you could do. And his, but his real task, his de facto task, um, was uh, to make sure, you know, the at the morning prayers, the session when the head of chancery talks to all the staff and tells them what to do during the day, he, his job was to go down to the toilets and make sure nobody was skiving. Yeah? And then he'd come back and he'd <laughs> nod to the head of chancery and the head of chancery would say thank you. And then maybe once a week or something, he'd be asked about some new sculpture or something. But But either way, that was it. And I said, doesn't this doesn't this completely, you know, blow your brain? You know, you're an adult, you've got a first, you know, um, yeah. you know you're married, you know, and you're being treated like a, like a, you know, kind of blackboard monitor at school. And he said, um, no, no, not really, he said, because um, I'll be able to do the same, yeah, uh, in 15 <laughs> years. And that was the mentality, yeah, and that all changed, Um uh, people became ambassadors much younger and uh, were given challenges, you know, when Soviet Union collapsed and all sorts of new countries were created, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but then then it turned out there wasn't any funding for all these new new embassies and the well, ambassadors, suppose, you know. So maybe 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 there was room to, to make some cuts. Uh, you know, you didn't necessarily need somebody um, snooping around the toilets. But you know, <laughs> yeah. you're reporting a five percent cut in budget, but potentially a twenty percent cut in uh, staffing. Let's bring in two two people who've who've been there uh, and done uh, that. So Simon Fraser was uh, former head of the diplomatic service, uh, is now managing uh, partner of uh, Flint Global Consultancy. Hi, Simon. Hi. Uh, we've also got Jill Rutter, uh, former civil, senior civil servant, then led the Institute for Government and now works for the think tank UK to Changing Europe. Hi, Jill. Hello, Matt. Um, uh, Simon, is there a risk that we always look back to the glory days? Oh, it used to be a Rolls-Royce machine, but actually if you went back to the period we thought was Rolls-Royce, the people then would have said, well, actually, no, it's still not, you know. Um, or is there something fundamentally wrong with the Foreign Office right now? Well, I think times change, don't they? And people's expectations change. And, you know, Roger said a lot of interesting things, some, I'd say, more relevant than others. Uh, But, you know, uh, it's true that there were, you know, diplomacy used to be a different type of activity. The Foreign Office used to be structurally more powerful in government. One of the things that's happened is there's been a shift of of activity towards the centre. You know, prime ministers and the staffs around their prime ministers have sought to take more control. And that raises a question for a foreign ministry and a foreign secretary. Mm. What authority and role do they actually Mm. have? And combined with that, uh, foreign policy has changed. So more of foreign policy is now owned by domestic departments, whether it's trade now or climate change or other things. Um, So the Foreign Office cannot actually control the whole agenda. It has to play a more coordinating sort of role. And I think it hasn't been brilliant at adapting to all those changes. One of the weaknesses of the Foreign Office has been its, I think, failure to operate effectively in Whitehall with other government departments. It's always stood a bit separate. Uh, and I think that's a mistake. When I was running it, I tried to change that, absolutely. But I don't think I fully succeeded. 
I think the Foreign Office needs to be integrated into the whole of the government system and to be more powerful in arguing its case. And some of the things that Roger has identified, I think, are a consequence of it not really doing that very effectively. But I would also agree with him, to be honest with you, since Philip Hammond's time, I don't think we've had the greatest run of foreign secretaries. Uh, Jeremy Hunt wasn't there for very long, but uh, uh, so I might exempt him. But so the, the political leadership has left something to be desired as well. Uh, Water, uh, there's something about, isn't there, someone like, for instance, uh, William Hague, who clearly was shadow foreign yeah. secretary uh, in opposition, thought about it a lot. And the job he really wanted to do was to, was yeah. to be foreign secretary, to sketch out a foreign policy, represent Britain around the world and so on. Whereas if it's seen as a sort of stepping stone to other things, you know, Liz Trust now supposedly using as a springboard to become leader, Dominic Ra before that, Jeremy Hunt before that, Boris Johnson before that. Uh, these are people, They weren't there for very long and uh, perhaps hadn't thought a huge amount about foreign policy. Um, and so if, if you haven't got that direction at the top and it's been seen as a sort of political stepping stone, then obviously that um, has an impact. And I said, my sense is that if you're working in the Foreign Office, you're there to, you, you feel like you're working for Britain and not the day-to-day -day political shenanigans that might be going on in Whitehall. Whereas if you have a very political person at the top, that, that, that creates some tension, doesn't it, Joe? Well, I think actually sometimes it's even worse than that. Because sometimes um, you get a sort of big player, like you mentioned William Hay, for whom Simon worked, who was a very respected figure and a big player in the Cameron government. But other times the Foreign Office is used as quite a convenient parking place for a rival um, that the Prime Minister really would like not to be having that much to do domestically and to be grappling with difficult foreign policy issues and a bit out of sight, out of mind, for example, Gordon Brown's posting of David Miliband to the Foreign Office um, yes, could yeah, be put yeah. in that camp. And it's quite interesting that some of the debates about Liz Truss, you could say, actually has a chance to re-establish the Foreign Office as a big player. <laughs> She's got the development brief. Um, as Roger said, that merger hasn't gone swimmingly from the start, was rather poorly planned, but does offer an opportunity, gives the Foreign Office a much bigger budget, uh, potentially more clout there. And now getting back Europe, where, frankly, the Foreign Office has been edged out, uh, largely by the Treasury and the Cabinet Office in the last 20 years, might give Liz Truss the chance to do that. But a lot of the discussions about Liz Truss being given the Europe brief, and in particular the Northern Ireland protocol to sort, is, is this deliberately handing a rival a poison chalice, or is it really saying that we want to establish the Foreign Office? Boris Johnson... I think as Foreign Secretary thought that the Foreign Office should probably be leading the Brexit negotiations, thought that the Foreign Office was the right place to be running commercial diplomacy. Uh, you didn't need a separate trade department. So it'd be quite interesting to see where, see where that goes. But the other rival centre for the Foreign Office, of course, is a new national security operation from the centre. So the Prime Minister has his own national security advisor looking at a lot of the things that foreign office would previously have thought were very much it's sort of calling card and things so you've got sort of rival centers there for the foreign office to see off Simon if you were still there how would you seek to fix it if you were advising either Boris Johnson or Liz Truss I mean it's, there is an interesting thing about Boris Johnson having been at the foreign office himself but apparently not being particularly bothered about the fact that it seems to be quite a mess uh, now, what would you, in fact, I might ask you all, all three of you this, so, so thinking caps on everybody, what would you try to do to try and re-establish the Foreign Office as the sort of, the, the, the whatever you call it, champion for global Britain or great office of state, whatever it might be? Start with you, first of all, Simon, what would you seek to do? 
Well, I mean, first of all, you do need to you do need to fund it. I mean, when I took it over in 2010, I had to find 25% savings in the operation budget. And, you know, there's gone on since then. So everything that Kim said about the budget and the resourcing is true. Uh, the Foreign Office accounts for about 4% of our total overseas spending, if you take account of aid and defence and everything. It's really small. Um, so, you know, you've got to resource it. Now, the DFID merger was, as Jill said, an attempt to do that. But actually, I don't think it was a very clever attempt. I'm not against it. But uh, the, the whole DFID thing was basically about two things. It was about getting some money for the Foreign Office. It was about aligning the aid activity a bit more closely with our foreign policy. Um, but it's been, as Roger said, it's been a hugely sort of heavy administrative task, which hasn't yet been completed. What I was always said, and what I believe is, the strategic importance in foreign policy lies in security and trade policy. I'd far rather see a, major, a merger between the trade department and the foreign office because trade is strategically important and gives you real leverage in international negotiations, particularly the way this government is, is approaching it after Brexit. So I'd like to see that. And then I'd like yeah. to see closer coordination with the MOD and the National Security Secretariat on the security agenda. The one good thing that the government did recently in its integrated review was sort of highlight the way in which the security agenda is moving forward and needs to be thought through more sophisticatedly. And I think the Foreign Office, final point, needs to have the courage of its convictions and give intellectual leadership and stop being quite a sort of slightly cringing as a department, as it's become a bit in recent times. Uh, it's got a lot of really talented people in it. It's got a lot of, of real expertise in languages, in understanding the world, and it should be courageous in applying that. There's a lot there from Simon. And, um, uh, thank you very much for that, Simon Fletcher. Um, uh, Jill, briefly, what, anything, anything you'd add to that, that, that shopping list? I think this trust needs, to sh this trust needs to show that she's a foreign secretary to be taken seriously rather than just sort of one who's interested in the next photo opportunity <laughs> and overspinning, which I think some of her critics at the Department of International Trade said was her real sort of selling point. So she actually needs to show that she's a serious player who's taking the advice of her officials really seriously and prepared to work well with them, because I think uh, that clearly wasn't the case with Dominic Raab as Foreign Secretary. I think the Foreign Office had a very rough time uh, during his tenure, so she needs to re-establish relationships with officials. Lovely stuff. Uh, Roger Boyce, your final word from you. Yeah, I can't disagree with anything uh, that was said there. You have to have a listening foreign secretary to, to some degree to understand the, the machine. You have to understand the machine that's there and not work outside it, which is what a lot of uh, foreign secretaries in, in, in recent years have done. And the other is you've got to deborisify by it, uh, if there is such a word. I mean, a lot of things that did go wrong started with Boris, and now, and now you have ministers, uh, starting with Raab, but then now with Liz Truss, who who are dependent on Boris's approval and patronage. So even even if you have ambitions that go beyond Boris, you can't deliberately set out and say, well, you know, our dealing with Nazanin Ratcliffe was a disaster and we need to do this on that, on Iran. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, you know, and uh, you, you will never get Liz Trust criticising the National Security Council. She'll say, no, no, it's all in Cobra and, you know, we don't have to worry about these things. But the truth is, there is an issue there. There is an issue. You can't have a 
Ben Wallace, Dominic Raab spat. You know, that that's just shows you something decadent about what's going on. So... Um, <laughs> So, you know, but she, but you can't criticise it because it's Boris. It's Boris who hasn't been turning up at National Security Council. Exactly. Meetings. So yeah. the, 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 to- the tone is set from the top. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.